Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. All right, Hebrews chapter 10, 1 John chapter 3, Matthew chapter 21. Let's uh, ask the Lord one more time to bless our study. Father, we need you to be able to understand Scripture. And we pray now that you would give us the ability to walk with you and to hear you talk to us. Move in this place tonight in such a powerful way that lives are changed. That chains of sin are broken. Holy Spirit, we ask you to do the supernatural. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The writer has spent about 10 chapters encouraging and exhorting the believers, stick with Jesus. First 10 chapters, stick with Jesus. Why would you go anywhere else? Why would you turn from the Lord because of tribulation or trial? Stick with Jesus. And now in chapter 10, the book's taking a turn. And now what he wants to talk about, convinced that they're going to stick with Jesus, we talked last week, the book is going to discuss the lifestyle that people of faith should have. And he calls this lifestyle, if you remember, the new and living way. It entails having an intimate relationship with God. Let us draw near, he said. It entails being steadfast in the faith, no matter what's going on. He said, let us hold fast. Don't let go of Jesus, no matter what. He said, listen, in this new way, in this new lifestyle, this living way, purpose to come to church to inspire others to walk by faith. And I encourage you guys last week, come 15 minutes early, stay 20 minutes later. Don't let church be for what you can get out of it, but give to others and let's inspire each other. Let's spur each other on towards love and good works. Now this new way, this new way of living, it's going to protect us because the writer has been warning us of apostasy leaving the faith. That's what the first warning was about that we read in Hebrews chapter 6. He was warning of, of, of apostasy. You remember Hebrews chapter 2. There are those that are going to drift from the faith. Hebrews chapter 3. Once you drift, well, you begin to doubt the faith. Hebrews chapter 6, once you're doubting, now you're a little lazy in the faith and you're not digging into the Word. You get stuck on the elementary things of faith. And now it leads us to this warning about apostasy. If you've started the drift, you can begin despising the faith and walk away from the faith. Hebrews chapter 10, let's pick it up in verse 26. For if we sin willfully, 
after we've received the knowledge of the truth. He's speaking to a believer. If we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. Now, if you stop there for just a moment... And you read, for if we sin willfully, some of us get a little concerned going, wait a second, I sinned today. If that's you, just go ahead and raise your hand. That's okay, you don't have to tell me. (laughs) If we sin willfully, isn't all sin willful? Think about it for just a moment. People come to me all the time and they say, I'm struggling with this sin or I'm struggling with that sin. It's not a struggle. Sin's a choice. You don't struggle with it. You just choose what you desire. There's no struggle. It just becomes a preference. I want to sin. It's a willful act. That's why Paul says we're in the fight of faith. We're making choices every day. Every single day we're making a choice. Whether we are going to walk in our flesh or we're going to walk in the spirit. And we've got to go to war with the flesh because it's constantly calling out to be satisfied. You ever been hangry? Anyone? Bueller? Ever been hangry? Have you ever been driving home in traffic and it's 6.30 and you're late for work and you miss lunch? Someone cuts you off and the next thing you want to do is bless the Lord, oh, your soul? (laughs) Hangry. When flesh says, I'm hungry, feed me. And maybe it's not food. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a premarital sex. Maybe it's, well, you can name whatever your hunger might be, but we're at war with the flesh. So we've got a purpose to stay in the battle. We've got a purpose to walk by faith and walk in the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. But this particular sin that he's speaking of is not our sin fight. It's not the war that we've got going on with the flesh. The sin that he is speaking of is one of apostasy. It's the same sin that he communicated back to us in Hebrews chapter 6. You see, these people were at one time, verse 26, they were one-time believers. They received the knowledge of the truth. They took in the Lord Jesus Christ. But now, verse 27... They were adversaries of the faith. They were opposed to the faith. And can I tell you that one of the characteristics of an apostate is willful sin in their lives. They no longer care about the holy lives that Jesus has called us to live. In fact, Turn with me to 1 John because I believe this is a warning for every believer that sits in here. 1 John chapter 3, I'm going to pick it up in verse 6. 1 John chapter 3, take a look at verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin or doesn't have the practice of sin. Whoever sins has never seen him or known him. Whoa, John. Now remember, John is speaking to believers. 
In fact, if you just look up at chapter 3, verse 1, he says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. And what he's saying of a child of God is that a child of God does not have the practice of sin. Going on, verse 7. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God doesn't sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Look at verse 10. In this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Here's how you can know a child of God. Here's how you know a child of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. In other words, they're practicing sin. Nor is he who does not love his brother. Gang, did you let that sit with you for just a minute? Because someone who commits the willful sin of apostasy, they are filled with willful sins in their life. They are practicing sin. And so, believer, we've got to take a little evaluation of our life and be careful not to have the characteristic of apostate where you know it's sin and you run towards it. Where you give in to the flesh and you make it a practice of your life instead of fighting the fight and conquering the battle and knowing that faith is the victory. If you continue to live in this choice of sin, that's the characteristic of an apostate, not a believer. So do you want to be the child of God? Well, the child of God puts into practice righteousness. Now, this in no way, no way, shape, or form says that we don't sin. No, no, no. The practice of sin, where we are going about and we're living for sin instead of living for God. Now, for the apostate, the writer says back in Hebrews, if you'd go back there with me, there's no more sacri- uh, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sin. You see, the writer has already proven that Jesus was the final sacrifice to sin. He satisfied the debt of God when he died on the cross. So he's letting the first century Jew know, you can't go back to sacrificing bulls and lambs thinking that that's going to save you. You can't leave Jesus. He was the final sacrifice. God no longer works like that. That's the old covenant, the sacrifice of lambs and bulls. Now we're living in the new covenant. And the new covenant is a more excellent way because Jesus brought a better sacrifice. Jesus brought a better uh, covenant. The point that he's making is very clear. The only thing an apostate has to look forward to is judgment. Now, we know what an apostate is. It is someone that purposefully leaves the faith and does not return to Jesus before their death. But what I love about our Savior is that he will plead with that person as long as they have breath. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28. 
Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now, we've got to remember that he is writing first-century Hebrews, first-century Jews, who are very familiar with the Old Testament. We're not that familiar, but what he's trying to do is prove his point with Scripture from the Old Testament. Now, I want to take a commercial break for just a moment. It's Romans chapter 15, verse 4. The Bible says, For whatever things were written before, speaking about the Old Testament, were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the Old Testament scriptures, I've added that, might have hope. The only scriptures that existed when Paul wrote this was the Old Testament. And what he's saying to us, the things that were written were for us to learn from. So we can't ignore the book of Exodus. We can't ignore the book of Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Isaiah. They have got to be a part of our devotional life. Don't avoid the Old Testament. I heard a mega church pastor say that the Old Testament is no longer relevant for our 21st century world. We must preach from the New Testament. Well, I'll go back to what St. Augustine said long before this megachurch pastor. The New Testament lies hidden in the old, and the old becomes manifest in the new. We can't ignore the Old Testament. In order to understand and learn the New Testament, well, Take a look at Numbers chapter 15, and now we'll be enlightened to what he's talking about, Moses and the two or three witnesses. What in the world is he saying? It goes all the way back to Numbers. Take a look. You shall have one law for him who sins unintentionally, in other words, they didn't mean it, and for him who is native born among the children of Israel, and for the stranger who dwells among them. But the person who does anything presumptuously or a willful sin, whether he's native-born or a stranger, that one brings reproach on the Lord. He should be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. That means capital punishment. His guilt shall be upon him. Whoa! Anyone that willfully refused to obey the law of Moses and was proven guilty by two or three witnesses, capital punishment. Did you see that? And what the writer in Hebrews is doing is reminding them of Numbers chapter 15. He's comparing the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. And now, in verse 29, he says this in the comparison. Of how much worse punishment, wow, than besides death, cut off from your people? Of how much more worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the spirit of grace. You see, what the writer is doing is comparing the old covenant to the better new covenant. But there's something and a characteristic of God that I want us to understand 
before we dig into verse 29. I'm going to take you to a parable that Jesus says, and it gives a character of God. Come with me and go with me to Matthew chapter 21. Now, let me say, as before we go into this, have you ever ministered to someone who's struggling with alcohol? Don't raise your hands. And you've tried to tell them, hey, this is going to destroy your life. Hey, you're going to lose your job. Hey, you're going to like, get into a lot of trouble if you drive under the influence. And you spend 10 chapters of saying, listen, i got to tell you, man, like, this is the wrong decision. Don't drift away. Don't depart. I think you're beginning to see the correlation. And so you're speaking to this someone who's struggling with alcohol, and now in a final attempt, you say to them, Dude, the doctor said if you continue to drink, you're going to die because you've got cirrhosis of the liver. Now, maybe you wouldn't start there. But if you're desperate for this person to live, then you're going to do whatever it takes so that they can live. That's exactly what the writer is doing. You might say, well, wait a second, this is a very harsh way to communicate that if they commit this willful sin, there's nothing left for fiery indignation. The writer has spent 10 chapters trying to say, dude, give up the alcohol. Now, in a final attempt, he's saying, listen, if you don't come back to Jesus, you're going to die. And you're going to be separated from God. Matthew chapter 21, would you look now at verse 33? Jesus, he's telling a parable. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. He leased it to vine dressers, and he went into a far country. Now when vintage time drew near... He sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. The vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, they'll respect my son. I think you're beginning to see the point. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come. Let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? One of the disciples answers and said, He'll destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render him the fruits in their seasons. You see, the writer is making a differentiation between the old covenant and the new. And if you broke the law of God in the old covenant, capital punishment. You were to be cut off from your people. And the way that you were cut off was through capital punishment. Well, what could be worse than capital punishment? See, in this context, we need to see a character of God. Would you look again at verse 41? He'll destroy those wicked miserably. 
Go back with me, if you would, to Hebrews, keeping that in mind. Keeping that in mind, go back with me to Hebrews. It's clear in Matthew 21 that God judges those that killed his son. It's very clear. That was part of the old covenant. Now in the new covenant, he says there's a worse punishment than capital punishment. You see, the old covenant demanded the death penalty whereby you were separated from the people by death. But choosing to reject the new covenant is worse because you'll be separated from God for an eternity. It's a worse punishment. And he gives three reasons why this punishment from God is given to you. The first is, they've trampled the Son of God underfoot. Trample the Son of God underfoot. In other words, they treated the king of kings like a doormat instead of a king. I want you to go to England. And I want you to walk into Buckingham Palace. And then I want you to take your shoes off. And as you're meeting Prince Charles, instead of bowing or shaking his hand, I want you to step on him. I want you to throw him down and step on him. Do you know what would happen to you in a matter of moments? The security guards would come and deal with you violently. If you treated the king of England by stepping on him like a doormat, throwing him down and stepping on him, the natural response of the security would be to deal with you. Now imagine... You're God's son, the king of kings. You throw him down and you just stamp on him. And God goes, oh, that's okay. No, no, God says that's not okay. Second reason he gives is this. They counted the blood of Jesus common. Now let me explain what that means. What he's saying here is that Jesus' blood is no different than than the blood of a bull or the blood of a lamb. God says, no, that's, that's not true. He's my son. In our day, it would be like saying, well, Muhammad has words of life, and so does Buddha, and so does Confucius. I mean, why can't I follow with them? Why can't I just go to heaven by following one of them? No, no, no. You're counting the blood of Jesus common. He's the son of God and gave his life for you, and he said that he is the only way. So you can't say when he says that he's the only way that there's another way because a man says there's another way. That would make Jesus common, but he's not common. He's the son of the living God. But we're going to camp out in this last one. Take a look. Not only trampled, not only counted common, but insulted the spirit of grace. Now the spirit of grace is another term for the Holy Spirit. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace, so the Holy Spirit, and supplication. Then they'll look on me whom they pierced. 
Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. We know the responsibility of the Spirit is to convict the world of sin. So when Zechariah says that, the, that God is going to pour out the Spirit of grace, he's going to give the favor of the Spirit to the Israel nation in these last days so that revival can break out. He's referring to the work of the Holy Spirit. So can I tell you something that God knows about us? God knows our human condition. He knows we're human. How many made mistakes today? How many made mistakes today? Anybody? Okay. How many of you were convicted when you made the mistake? So I'm hoping every believer raises their hand as well. If you didn't raise your hand, we're going to offer you salvation at the end of this. <laughs> you see, God knows our human condition. So he gave us the spirit of grace. In other words, he gave us the favor of having his spirit in us. He knows we're human. So he gave us the favor of having his spirit in us. Now, take a look at this scripture. It's John chapter 16, verse 13 and 14. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he'll guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he'll speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare it to you. You see, in this verse, we see the role of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Spirit's job is to glorify Jesus in you. That's his job. That's his role. So the Bible says he's the Spirit of truth. He's leading us and he's guiding us. He's constantly leading us to glorify Jesus in our lives. But we have a free will. We get to make choices. And the Bible says that we can resist the Holy Spirit. It's Acts chapter 7, verse 51. You stiff-necked. Now, I don't know if you want to resist the Holy Spirit because God kind of puts a name on it. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. Ouch. Who wants to be a stiff-neck? I mean, think of what, you stiff-necked. I mean, he's calling him a name. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in hearts and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Have you ever been in that situation where your heart is pounding and the Spirit of God is saying to you, go and do it, go and do it, go and do it, and you go, no. (laughs) Guess what? Stiff-necked. Have you ever been in that situation where the Holy Spirit is saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, and you do it? I just want you to keep this visual. Every time you don't do it with the Holy Spirit, we can resist the Holy Spirit because we've got a free will. But I want to let you know as believers, as believers, when we don't do what the Spirit is asking us to do, we can grieve the Holy Spirit. It's Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do you know that when you sin as a believer, you make the Spirit of God sad? 
I want you to think about it for a moment. When we sin, resisting the guidance of the Holy Spirit, who wants to glorify Jesus in our life, we make the Spirit sad. Because I think sometimes when I put the in front of it, like it's an entity. He's a person. He's the person of the Spirit. He's the person in the triune Godhead called Holy Spirit, Spirit of Grace. And when he's watching us do our sin, resisting him, leading us to glorify Jesus, he cries. In 3 John 4, the Spirit tells us something. He says this, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth. I'm a parent. I get this. Timon, he's a uh, Cal Baptist. He's already got a Bible study that he started. I'm telling you. He, he, he's, I, I told him, I'm like, all you need is a mission trip and take an offering. You're going to be a small church there in Cal Baptist. I love it. I mean, he is just rocking it. And I can't tell you when his friends are going out and doing the freshman college thing and my son is saying no, I have no greater joy than to hear that Timon is walking in truth. But can I tell you something else as a parent? There's no greater sadness when your children don't walk in truth. Those of us who have had kids that are not walking in truth, you know exact. you can actually still, you can feel it now. What you feel right now is what the Spirit feels when you don't walk in truth. He's sad. We can grieve him. But not only that, as believers, we can quench the fire of the Holy Spirit in our life because of our sin. Our sin throws water on the fire of the Holy Spirit. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. The Bible says, do not quench the Spirit. We, our sin douses the flame, and thus we insult the ministry of of Jesus. We insult the ministry of the Spirit. In other words, we're saying to the Spirit, you mean nothing to us. This thing that I'm feeling, I don't care. So he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, as you can imagine, there's a consequence for insulting the spirit of grace. Have you ever insulted someone and paid for it? Just ask Chris Rock. As he stood up there and insulted Jada Pinkett Smith, just ask Chris what happened when he started insulting. It's not, I'm not condoning what Will Smith did, but in the flesh, whenever we're insulted, that's what can happen. 
And what the Bible is saying is you're insulting the Spirit and God takes action. You see, this verse in verse verse 30, this verse is taken from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Moses is at the end of his life and he's writing in his journal everything that he saw God do. And one of the things that he saw God do was that vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. The Lord will judge his people. You see, Moses witnessed those who refuse to obey God die in the wilderness. He saw it. God was true to his word. God didn't let one of them go into the promised land. God said they wouldn't, and he didn't allow them to go. They insulted God because he delivered them, and they chose not to believe. I need to point out something here. Because this word vengeance, it doesn't do the word justice. You see, the translation is not the word vengeance, even though it's our English word. Vengeance has an idea that God's vindictive. You did this to me and I'm doing it back to you. No, 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 that's not God at all. This Greek word, it doesn't indicate anything that God is vindictive with vengeance. But he's just. And he's executing justice. Since you have refused and resisted my Holy Spirit and insulted my gift of grace, then justice will be served in your life because of the choice that you made. That's heavy. So heavy that while the writer is thinking of it, he says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. See, God is able to execute judgment because you've rejected his son. There's only one way to heaven, not two. He's speaking to the apostate and he's saying, if you don't return, he is sending a very hard warning. Listen, if you're talking to an alcoholic and you're trying to get them to change, you're going to do whatever you can because you don't want them to die. It's exactly what he's doing here because he cares for them. He wants them to live and he's sending this strong rebuke. You either accept God God's way or you accept God's judgment for your life. And won't you, wouldn't you rather choose to accept God's way? And instead of falling into the hands of the living God, why not fall into the arms of a loving Savior? You see, as long as you have breath, you can return. There's a forgiveness of sin. Even if you are living in the practice of sin, even if you've resisted the Holy Spirit, even if you are walking in sin, today if you hear His voice... Don't harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. You can choose to change today. I prefer to fall into the arms of a loving Savior. I pray you do as well. Well, this has been heavy. And so what the writer does, he turns his tone, just like he did in Hebrews 6, after that heavy communication... And now he begins to encourage them. He has given them a great exhortation, but now he wants to give a great edification. He wants to build them up. He wants to encourage them to press on. Take a look at verse 32. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. He says, hey gang, 
I want to take you down memory lane. Remember when you were first saved? He calls it when you were illuminated, when you came to the light, where you left the kingdom of darkness and you walked and God delivered you into the kingdom of light. Do you remember when you first got saved? I want to take you all the way back to when you first got saved. It's 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, you'll see it on the screen, verse 9. You're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. How many of you are thankful that you've obtained the mercy of God? Like, how many of you were really good sinners? Like, don't, 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 you don't need to clap. I don't want you to clap about it. But like, you were a good sinner. Like, you were a, you were a rotten sinner. And then you came in contact with Jesus. And your life was forever changed. And what the Bible is trying to communicate is... That we don't go back to practicing sin. We go into a practice of praise. We give God the glory with our lives when we choose to follow his Holy Spirit. We belong to God. We become the people of God. And we're not going back to the practice of sin. We're going to go to the practice of praise with our lives. And let me give you one way to praise. It focuses around the one Holy Spirit. Don't resist his spirit. Listen to him when he's talking to you. When he says don't, don't. When he says do, do. Don't resist his spirit. Another way to praise is purpose not to grieve the spirit. Don't make him sad. Give him joy as you choose to walk in truth. And then don't quench the spirit, the fire of the spirit in your life, with repetitive sin. This is the way that we can praise God. We've been called to praise into the illuminated kingdom of lights. But now he then, in the same verse, introduces us to what the new and living way requires. We've been called into a new and living way. And he gives us a character of that new and living way. Look again, if you would. You were illuminated. You endured a great struggle with sufferings. Endurance. I think I've told you all before, but in 1988, um, actually it was, began in 1985, I began to train for the Olympics. I was a swimmer, and I began to train for the Olympics. I was Bahamian for the Bahamian uh, national team. And when I began training, I was swimming. I, I, I used to reek of chlorine. I, smelled so, I was in the pool so much that when I would come to church, people would move away because they couldn't take the stench of the chlorine. My hair was green. I mean, you should have seen me. I was in the pool all the time. I wanted to go to Seoul, Korea in 1988 to swim for the Bahamian national team. Now, it's a whole long story. But when I started training... A good friend of mine gave me this verse. Take a look. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run? But one receives the prize. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. In other words, if you're in a race, 
you might as well run. You entered the race. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. In other words, you've got to go to be in the training. You can't have chocolate cake every single day and think you're going to win the race. I wish you could, but you can't. Now they do it to obtain, speaking of the world, to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. I'm not running like this. No, that's ridiculous. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. He says, look, I'm in the race. I'm going to run to win. I'm not going to run to lose. I'm in the race. You see, when he speaks of a great struggle, this word great struggle in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32, it speaks of a competition. You're in a race. You're in a competition. And when he speaks of a great struggle with suffering, what he's referring to is when you're in a competition, it's going to hurt to win. You've got to give it everything you've got in order to win. I remember there was one race. I was trying to shave off point three seconds. So you know what I did? I didn't breathe the entire race because that little was going to take me 0.3 seconds of time. So I decided that I was going to swim the entire race without breathing. And let me tell you something. When I touched that wall, I got that 0.3 seconds and I, my lung almost exploded when I took my breath. Let me tell you something. I was going to do whatever it took to win because I wanted the gold medal. I didn't care how I suffered. Paul's saying, look, you're a Christian. You're getting heaven. Why not run in such a way to get the prize? Why not give it everything you've got? You've made the decision to be in the race. Why not you just run like you are in it? That's what Paul's trying to get across. So in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 33, he says this. Here's the struggles. Partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches, tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. See, now he's going to describe the the struggles they're going through. And what he's really doing, he's revealing the strategy of Satan and how he tempts us to drift, to depart, and to give up on faith. But I want you to know, Christian, as we walk through this, what the enemy intends for evil, God means for good for your life. And the first thing he says is you were made a spectacle. People reproached you. Oh, look at the Christian coming to work. Bet she won't say a curse word. Ha, 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 and gets everybody laughing at you. That's reproach. Tribulation. Shh, shh, shh. Here comes the Christian. Gathers the whole crowd. And they start doing it. I worked at Fort Lauderdale Beach. Okay, I was a lifeguard on Fort Lauderdale Beach. Let me tell you what the guards did. They called me Borny. That was my name. Born again. They called me Borny. That was my nickname. Okay? Borny. Five years of my life, that's what I was known as. I didn't have a name as Chet. I, my name was Borny. And one day, they turned off all the lights in the locker room, and on my locker, they put a picture 
that I won't even put anything in your mind. They turned on the lights, and I got to my locker. They turned on the lights. There was, and there they all were. Oh, look at Barney. We caught him. 30 of them making a public spectacle of me because I was the Borny. And let me tell you something. It hurt my feelings. I felt rejected. Because let me tell you what the enemy's going to do. He's going to have an emotional attack on your life. He's going to have an emotional attack on your life, but not just that. He says here, you even suffered with your companions. Let me tell you what else he's going to do. He's going to attack your family. He's going to attack your closest friends. He's going to go after your Achilles heel. The very people that you love, he's going to come after. And then he says, you were with me in my chains. He's going to come after you physically. There's going to be a physical attack. You see, the writer was physically stopped from sharing the gospel. You see, a physical attack could be a sickness, a chain of sickness. He's going to do everything he can to come at you. He gave Job boils. Trust me, there will be a physical attack. And then he said, do you remember when you were plundered? People stole from you. He says there's going to be financial attack. But he gives the secret. And he says there at the end of verse 34... He says, even though you were plundered, take a look at verse 34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Let me tell you, let me tell you, he gives the secret of endurance. Keep your eyes on heaven, not earth. Keep your eyes on heaven. When your money gets taken away, when your feelings get hurt, when the, when the enemy attacks your children and your family and your closest friends, when you get physically attacked, keep your eyes on heaven. You see, the problem is, is that everyone thinks they're being faithful to get something on earth. It's the student that says, Lord, I'll go to church every week if you just let me help, help me pass this test. You know what I say to them? Why don't you study and then God will help you. We all want something on earth. Lord, if you just help me have a bride, I promise I'll raise my children in the Lord. Lord, if you just do this, I'll do this. And all of our prayers are earth-based and focused. But what he's saying is if you want to endure, get your eyes on heaven. Get your eyes on the reward. Our race is not towards something on earth. Our race is running to heaven. Run in such a way to get there. And everyone who's in this race runs in such a a way to win. The heaven is our great reward. Not our finances, not our physical health, not the relationships that surround us. Heaven is our reward. We get Jesus. Is that good enough for everybody? It's good enough for me. So he encourages them. Now that you got your eyes on heaven, verse 35, therefore don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Don't throw away your confident trust in the Lord. And that's important in the midst of trial, isn't it? See, we've got to remember that some of them are drifting. Some of them are departing. Some of them are doubting because of the trial. Trials make us do that. God, do you know what I'm going through? 
God, do you care? God, do you see what's happening? Do you know where I'm at? Trials make us doubt. And he's encouraging them, keep the faith. Trust the Lord. Don't look to earth. Look to heaven. Don't lean on your own understanding. Some of them are casting off their faith, and he's imploring them to have endurance by keeping your eyes on heaven. So in verse 36, he encourages them. For you have need of endurance. So after you've done the will of God, you may receive the promise. We need endurance, gang. He's going to stick on this topic all the way through chapter 12. You see, our Christian life is to do the will of God. And let me tell you, there's going to be great opposition as we run towards heaven. We got the world against us. We got the enemy against us. We got our own flesh against us. So we need to endure through the lure of the world. We need to endure through the temptation of the enemy. We need to endure through the pull of the flesh. We have need of endurance. And in these final three verses, he gives us the way to endure. He gives and inspires us a way to endure in this life, to keep our eyes on heaven. And the first thing it says to encourage us is, for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. He reminds us, remember Jesus is coming back soon. He said he's coming back, and he will come back. And all of the gospel writers, they motivate us with this, that we should be constantly watching, constantly waiting, and constantly working, waiting for his return. Why not live our life today as if he was going to return today? Why not wake up tomorrow morning, if God so permits, and say, Lord, let me live my life today to prepare for your coming? He said, listen, you want to endure? Focus on the fact that Jesus is coming, and he's coming soon. But in verse 38, he says, now the just shall live by faith. I don't know if you know this, but this is the third time that this Old Testament scripture from Habakkuk has been spoken of. Third time. Third time it's been spoken of. One in Romans, one in Galatians. And now here in Hebrews chapter 10, he says, we must live by faith. The Bible implores us, walk by faith, not by sight. And it means to have a lifestyle of faith, not feeling. I went to church Sunday. I went to church Tuesday. I'm not going Thursday. Now, if you're at home listening and you did this, God bless you, be convicted. (laughs) When we're called not to neglect gathering together, we need each other. Coming together is an act of faith. I encourage you and you encourage me. That's just the way it works. We inspire each other. We motivate each other. Turning the other cheek. It's a life lived by faith. Going the second mile. And it's not picking and choosing when I do this. No, it's a lifestyle of what I've learned I live. So he says, listen, you want to endure? Just live by faith. 
Don't pick and choose when you're going to live by faith. Don't pick and choose. Don't live by feeling and how you feel. If you want to endure, live by faith. Feelings will always deceive you. Let me tell you what feelings are good for. Feelings are good when you're praising God and you're giving him all the glory and you're shouting from the very core of when you're saying, come on my soul, lift up that song. That's where feelings are good. But feelings aren't good when you don't want to go the second mile and you say, I don't feel like it. Finally, he encourages them with this. He says, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him, because we're not those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. The evidence of the Spirit of God in us is that we don't quit. That's how we do endure. We make the decision, I'm in the race, and I'm just going to keep running. Because there's no pleasure, he says, in people that quit. And we're not those people. Christians don't quit. We don't give up on faith. We hold fast, no matter how it feels. And let me tell you where I have to hold fast sometimes. When I make a mistake. When I sin. Yep, your pastor just said it. I sin. Just ask my wife. I'm a brother. Pastor is my gift. But I'm a brother. Just like you, I'm running my race. And it's in that point where I'm reminded of Proverbs chapter 24. Though a righteous man falls down seven times, he gets right back up again. He gets right back up. And the way I get up is... I confess my sin to the Lord and I trust that he cleanses me from all unrighteousness and I get back up in my race. Let me tell you, Christian, the way that we endure, we just don't quit. Amen? Amen. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name so thankful for this word of exhortation. Lord, we know You're speaking to the apostate, the one that has left the faith. But with a strong assertion, you are desperately reaching out to that very same person. Saying, I can forgive. So Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Use this word in our life. We don't want to look like apostates. We want to look like Christians practicing righteousness, not practicing sin. So Holy Spirit, would you move in this place tonight and do what only you can do. Lead us to truth. The truth that we're to glorify Jesus with our lives. Some of you have fallen down. You're a believer, but you got a practice of sin. You've even given it the excuse, and now you call it your personality. You now say, it's just who I am. Mean is not practicing righteousness. Bitter 
is not practicing righteousness. Joyful, loving, forgiving. That's the practice of righteousness. And sometimes you don't feel like it. So you call to live by faith. That's how you endure. That's how you make it to the end. So I believe the Spirit of God wants to speak to you tonight. Do you have a practice of sin? I won't have to tell you what it is. The Spirit already spoke to you. So believer, it's time to get up. I know you've fallen down five times. you still got two to go. And the way you get back up is you confess your sin. So confess it right now and ask God for forgiveness. And when the Spirit speaks to you, don't do it. Don't resist Him. When the Spirit is leading you, don't grieve Him. When the Spirit is guiding you, don't throw water on Him. Quench the fire of His flame. If you're involved with fornication, time to stop. If your mouth is filled with filthy language, it's time to stop. If you're a liar, it's time to stop. If you're mean and angry, a gossiper or slanderer, it's time to stop. You can't live in this is just who I am. You can't say this is my personality. Yield to the Spirit and let Him transform you. That's what He does. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.